If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue in our, our series through the book of Hebrews, looking at how Jesus is better. And I'm so excited for us to continue in this passage this morning. Last week we were looking at how Jesus is superior to the angels. What does that mean for him to be above all and how he deserves our greatest attention, our greatest devotion? And as we come into this passage this morning, we get to look at that he's not only superior to the angels, but what we've been singing about, what we've been praying about, that Jesus is our high priest. He is the one who makes the way between us and God, who bridges the gap, and we see that clearly in this passage. So I just want us to read uh, from God's word together. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2 and go through the end of the chapter. Therefore, looking back to everything that's happened in the previous section, talking about Jesus' superiority to the angels we talked about last week, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So I'll pause there for a second. We talked about this last week. If Jesus is the superior Son, if He is above all and all glory and honor belong to Him and He is the Savior, He deserves our greatest attention. But to reject the Son is to reject life itself. How shall we escape if we reject such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, just in case we're unsure who we're talking about here, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Talking about Jesus. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers or sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He's quoting from Psalm 22, one of the psalms about Jesus. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Quoting from Isaiah 8. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Talking about us, praise God. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every single way, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. And so much in this passage that that we could unpack and kind of dig into, but what I want us to see this morning, this is kind of will set up a time of response as we come into the Lord's Supper, is that as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, we took the first several weeks to talk about that God has spoken, and He has most definitively, most clearly spoken through the Son. And so we took time to talk about who is the Son, who is this Jesus, that He is fully God and that He is fully man and God's most clear revelation is through Jesus Christ the Son. Last week as we were going through Hebrews 1 and then into Hebrews 2, we talked about how Jesus is superior, that angels are great, they're mighty, powerful messengers of God sent to serve on God's behalf, but they do not compare with the Son. That Jesus is superior in every single way. And you can kind of follow the train of thought. Now he is taking it to another level saying he is not only the superior son, but Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest. Now for us this morning, that, that language is, is a little different. We, we don't have high priest that we interact with day by day or week by week. You know, when you come into the church, you aren't looking to go find the priest here to take care of your sins or to pray with or anything like that. So when we talk about high priest, uh, that language is all throughout the Bible, but it most clearly and it first shows up in the Old Testament. And I love that as a church family, we're reading through the Old Testament this year. So if you're going through the Bible reading plan, you're in Exodus and some of this priestly language comes out in the book of Exodus, but especially when we get to the book of Leviticus, these images that we are reading about in Hebrews come to life, and this is one of those, talking about high priest and talking about propitiation and atonement and sacrifice. See, in in the Old Testament, we have the role of high priest for a very specific reason. God is holy He longs to reside, his presence to be with his people, to dwell with his people. That's what the Garden of Eden was, God's presence with his people. But there's a problem. God's creation, God's people have sinned against the holy God. Starting with Adam and Eve, and as you go through the story, and we've been reading through Family after family, people after people have rejected God, have rebelled against his rule, have rebelled against his reign. And so you have holy God, but then you have unholy people, rebels, sinners, disobedient. And so how does holy God reside with his unholy people? How can he have communion and fellowship with them? Because if God is holy, if he is perfect, if he is righteous, if he is fully loving and fully forgiving and fully merciful and fully faithful, he cannot overlook injustice. God cannot be just and overlook your injustice and my injustice. God cannot be loving and overlook injustice caused by and against those he loves, right? God cannot be merciful by ignoring injustice that's done to others. 
And so God's love, God's mercy have to exist with his justice, have to exist with wrath. You can't have one, you can't have one without the other. And so God's people have this problem, holy, holy God that they want to be with and God wants to be with them, but they're separated because of their sin. And so God, in the pictures in the Old Testament, most fully fulfilled in Jesus, as we're going to see as we walk through this passage, made a way through the high priest, through the day of atonement, through this big word we read here, propitiation. It's a sacrifice. And the role of the high priest was to come before God on behalf of the people and offer sacrifices. Blood would be shed to cover those who were guilty. And so in the Old Testament, we have this reality. God desires for his people to be in his presence. Problem, God is holy. We are not. So what is the solution? The solution is this word we read earlier. It's propitiation. Which means the punishment, the payment, the, the wrath against sin being poured out on a sacrifice instead of the offender. And so throughout the pages of the Old Testament, sometimes it can almost be just overwhelming as you're reading through the end of Exodus and through Leviticus numbers, blood is everywhere. Every sin, intentional and unintentional, blood is required. A bull, a goat, a lamb, a dove must die to cover the guilt of the offender. And so in the book Leviticus, we see there are four things that are necessary so that propitiation can happen. One, an offense or a crime must be committed. Second, a person offended must be reconciled. That's God. Third, a person offending needs to be pardoned. That's the people. That's us. But fourth, a sacrifice or means of making atonement is necessary. And it was the role of the high priest to bring that sacrifice before God, to slaughter that animal. And a lot of times, if you read Leviticus 16, it talks about the Day of Atonement, where one day out of the year, like all of God's people would come together to recognize the sin of the people. And there would be two lambs or two goats that were there. One would be slaughtered, one would be killed, his blood would be shed. And that was a picture of the payment for sin, the wrath of God being carried out on that animal instead of the people. Then a second goat would be freed, sent out into the wilderness. It's a picture of sin being removed from the camp, the guilt, the shame being removed from God's people so that they could be in God's presence again. See, God's anger and justice against sin would be poured out on an innocent sacrifice. And the offender's sin would then be atoned for. Goats, bulls, sheep, and doves would die so that people wouldn't have to die. But all those were pictures because, and here's the problem, an infinite offense, an infinite offense against an infinite God cannot be repaid with a finite sacrifice. So we need a faithful high priest. We need a sacrifice. And here's the beauty of the gospel, and here's the beauty of this passage that we're going to walk through. Jesus is the high priest who stands in the gap between us and God, but Jesus is not just the high priest. Jesus is the offering. He is the sacrifice. Jesus is the answer, which leads to our big truth this morning. Jesus is the propitiation 
for our sin. Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Again, that word propitiation, it's, it's a big word, okay? So big words can be hard and that's okay. It means the payment, the righteous payment for our sin. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. He's the one who brings many sons, many daughters to glory. He is the righteous one who makes broken, rebellious uh, people righteous in his sight. He takes the punishment for sin and wrath of God on himself. He brings true forgiveness to the guilty. And we see this in verse 17 of chapter 2. If you have your Bible open, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus becomes the way for God's holiness to not be tainted and be put on display for his character to not have to be broken, for him to be who he is because we need him to be who he is. We need him to be holy. We need him to be fully loving. We need him to be just. We need him to be merciful. We need him to be faithful. No one wants to serve a God who's unjust. So he remains holy, but sinners, those who've broken God's law, those who've rebelled against him, are made right in God's sight through Jesus Christ. That's what we've sung about this morning. That's what we'll celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper together in a few minutes. So that leads to a really important question. How can Jesus be the payment, the propitiation for our sin? How is it that he can do that when we can't do that and no one else can do that? Why is Jesus the only one who can be a merciful and faithful high priest for us? Why is he the one who can stand before God in our place? Two big ideas this morning. The first one is this. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. How can Jesus do this? Well, he is the founder of our salvation. Look at verse 10 with me this morning. We're just going to kind of walk through this passage together. Verse 10, for it is fitting that he, talking about Jesus, or talking about God, sorry, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. The word for at the beginning of verse 10 connects it to that whole section that's there. It says, it was fitting, meaning it was right, it was proper, for whom, by whom all things exist. Ultimate authority. God knows all things, he sees all things, he's above all things. All things belong to him and this is the means by which he has chosen to bring about and resolve this problem between broken, sinful us and holy, holy God. And what is his aim? To bring many sons, many daughters to glory. Those who are rebels, those who are slaves to their sins, slaves to their passions, which is all of us in the room. The Bible's really, really clear. We're not good people who make mistakes every now and again. But we are people who at our core have willfully chosen to reject God willfully chosen to pursue what is evil in his sight. 
And we know this to be true. We know this to be true. We, we know this as parents with our kids who even very little as infants and, and you know, toddlers, they're so sweet and they are so precious and they can disobey you so clearly and so quickly. You know, don't, don't touch that, don't do that. And they look at you and smile with those cute little innocent looking eyes and then take off the other way or knock the thing off. Like they know. They know. Why? Because we've all chosen to reject God. There's something deeply broken within us. But the good news of the gospel is that he wants to bring many sons, many daughters, union, communion, to glory, to be with him. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. What does that word founder mean? It means two things. One, it means he's the author. He is the author. This is the same word that he will use again in Hebrews 12 where it talks about Jesus being the author and the perfecter of our faith. Why is that important? The author of Hebrews is saying this, Jesus is the author of our faith, meaning faith starts with Jesus. Faith begins with God. It doesn't begin with me. It doesn't begin with you. It begins with him. He is the initiator. He is the starter. It begins with him. Praise God. But the word founder also means pioneer or leader. He is the one who goes first. He is the one who leads the way. He was the one who went to the cross. No one made him go to the cross. Jesus is very clear. He chose the cross. He chose to submit to the Father's will. He chose. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus is the one who goes before. This is kind of a picture of what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about Moses and Joshua who are also pioneers, who are also leaders. And he's going to be comparing Jesus to Moses and Jesus to Joshua. But he is the one who is the founder of our faith. He's the one who goes before. He blazes the trail. He makes the way. Well, how does he do that? Two realities. First, we see that Jesus is the superior son. He is the superior son. We talked about this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but notice the word perfect in verse 10. He's not just a son, he is the perfect son. And we see this language throughout the passage we read. He is crowned with glory and honor. Everything is in subjection under his feet. Nothing is outside of his control. He is the perfect founder. And that word perfect means to be made perfect. Again, this is kind of high priestly language here. Before the high priest could go into the tabernacle, could go into the holies of holies to take that sacrifice on behalf of the people to God, he had to go through cleansing rituals. He had to make purification for his own sin and he had to wash. He had to go through all of these steps. And what the author of Hebrews is alluding to when he says that Jesus is the perfect founder he's saying Jesus has done everything necessary to be the sacrifice and payment for our sin which leads to a second reality Jesus is not just the superior son which he talked about last week second Jesus is the suffering son Jesus is the suffering son how can Jesus be the perfect sacrifice for sin well he answers that question look at verse 9 and verse 10 but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? It's talking about Jesus' humiliation. That he laid aside some of his divine attributes. He took on 
flesh. He became a human just like you and just like me. He lowered himself. He became a servant. The king of heaven was born in a manger. He lived in obscurity as the son of a carpenter. He had no home. He had no place to lay his head. He became low. And not only did he live an insignificant, from the world's standards, an insignificant life, but he suffered as a criminal for you and for me. But we see him, verse 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, listen to this, perfect, how? Through suffering. Perfect through suffering, the sinless one, the one who didn't deserve to be persecuted, who didn't deserve to suffer, who always honored God, who was faithful in all that he did, suffered in your place and in my place. He bore our death. He became low. He became humiliated for us in our place. This is suffering servant language. You can go back and read Isaiah 53 and it kind of talks about this coming servant. The reality that we see in this passage is that no one can satisfy sin except for the one who is holy, holy, holy God. And Jesus, who is holy, holy God, the sinless one, became a human being and suffered in your place and my place. That is why he can be the founder of our salvation, the one who begins, the author of our salvation, the one who initiates our salvation because he was made perfect through his suffering as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. And I love as you go through this passage, it says uh, that it doesn't, we don't see him as being the one who's crowned. Verses 8 and 9. It doesn't look like it right now. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but it is. Meaning for us, friends, I think this is really important for where we live in our culture today that our perceived reality of what's happening in the world around us isn't always the reality. That it doesn't look like right now that Jesus is ruling and reigning, that he is the sacrifice for sins, that he is superior to the angels. What it looks like right now is that this world is a crazy place without a lot of hope. Religion can be hard to believe and it makes, doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that this may not look like the reality, but Jesus as the king, Jesus as the ruler, Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, it is the reality. And we need to be careful not just to look at reality through our perception of it, but through what scripture says about it. Jesus is the founder of our salvation. But not only is Jesus the founder of our salvation... Second big idea this morning. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest. So how can Jesus be the propitiation, the sacrifice, the atoning work for our sin? Well, one, he has to be the founder. He has to go first. He has to make a way. 
But not only is he has to be the one who makes a way, the founder, he also has to be the high priest. But he's not just any high priest. He is merciful and faithful. That word merciful means compassionate. Compassionate. What does that mean? Jesus loves you. He has compassion for us. Because he experienced suffering like we do. And greater. He experienced temptation. And greater. He understands our existence. He understands what we've walked through. He understands the pressures of life. He he understands the pain of death of loved ones and all those things. He is merciful. He is compassionate. It kind of harkens back to in the Gospels when Jesus was looking out over Jerusalem and it says his heart was filled with compassion. That from his inmost being he was moved for the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Jesus for you and for me. Merciful, compassionate, but not just merciful, faithful. The word faithful in the Greek means unwavering, constant care. Constant, continual care for God's people. He, He continues to care for us. Scripture says He remains faithful even when we are faithless. Because He cannot deny Himself we very quickly move and shift. I was even thinking uh, just this, how this happens in my own life. I was thinking about the war in Ukraine and how when all of that happened, like just for me personally, there's just something in your heart that you just grieve what's happening and you pray for your brothers and sisters and you pray for freedom and you pray that God's will and work would happen in that and just how that occupied so much of my mind and so much of just kind of looking at news feeds. But how little I think about that now. That I get distracted, we move on. And it's not because the crisis becomes less, it's just because we become numb. Friends, that's not how Jesus is toward you. He is faithful, meaning he's unwavering in his commitment to be compassionate and merciful. To continue that pursuit of his people. Jesus is our merciful and faithful, but not only is he merciful and faithful, the third word there that's important, he is the high priest, meaning the one who stands in the gap between God and sinful people. He is the one who is our mediator. He goes before us, but again, not just as the high priest, this is important, as the offering, as the sacrifice. So how is Jesus our merciful and faithful high priest? I just want to highlight four things the author says. And my hope this morning is just to give these truths, put these realities out in front of you as a way for you to think about your Savior. So there's four things he says about Jesus really quickly. First, Jesus took on humanity, becoming like us. Look at verse 12 and 14 saying, I will tell you the name of my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children of God has given me. All of these Old Testament quotations are to say that Jesus has become man. Jesus is with the brothers. Yes, he is still above the brothers and sisters as fully God, but he's become one of them. He comes alongside of them. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. 
What does that mean, friends? Jesus became fully human. Not just kind of human. Not just God with a human form. This is so important. He cannot be the payment for your sin and my sin unless he becomes one of us. So he took on our flesh. He knows our struggles, joys, temptations, sufferings. He can call us brothers and sisters. Why? Because he shared our existence fully and perfectly. Jesus took on humanity, becoming like us. But secondly, Jesus took our guilt, shame, and punishment by dying in our place. Look again at verse 14. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who had power over death, that is, the devil. In verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, a death, a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Jesus took your guilt, your shame, your punishment, all the wrongs committed by you and against you. He took that on himself as a sinless sacrifice, and he died in your place and my place. The author of Hebrews, a few verses earlier, calls this the grace of God, the gift of God for you and for me. The sinless one became sin for us. God took his justice out on himself instead of those who'd sinned against him. But not only did Jesus take our guilt and shame and punishment by dying in our place. Here's the good news. He didn't stay dead. Third, Jesus triumphed over death. The devil in bondage to sin. Friends, Jesus rose from the grave. Amen? He rose from the grave. He didn't stay dead. He defeated death. Look at what it says in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. Satan is a real being. And when it says he has power over death, it doesn't mean he has power over God. It just means because of humans' sin, we are slaves to sin, slaves to death. But Jesus on the cross defeated death. And in defeating death, he defeats the devil, defeats Satan. But not only does he defeat Satan, friends, he saves us from our bondage to sin. Sin leads to slavery. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, sin promises freedom, but it always leads to slavery promises happiness and joy but it always leads to pain and bondage and you know that to be true in your life I know that to be true in my life we have an ancient enemy we live under the fear of death that's power over us think about how fearful we are in our natural state of death and dying we are slaves to our sin it promises freedom but leads to slavery however Jesus by dying in our place rising from the dead destroys death delivers us from slavery to sin one theologian, Schreiner, said it this way, death is, the only, is only undone through death. Death dies only through the power of Jesus. By dying in our place, he defeated the power of death. And because of his death and resurrection life, his brothers, his sisters, his children, verses 12 through 13 that we read earlier, we get to share in his victory. We get to share in the new life in which he has. 
Which leads to the fourth reality. Jesus is our present help in suffering and temptation. This is important, friends. Jesus is not just a past help to save us from our sin. Jesus is an ever-present help today in times of trouble. The word help is used twice at the end of this section of Scripture, and it's two different words for the word help. The first one we see in verse 16, and the other we see in verse 18. The one in verse 16 means to take hold or to grasp. Then in verse 18 it means to aid. It's two different words. And there's two pictures here. The first one, if you can imagine being falling into this river, this torrent uh, full of rapids, and you're just being pulled along by this river, and you're heading to a waterfall, heading to destruction. There's no way out. doesn't matter what kind of swimmer you are. There is no escape. And at the last moment, someone reaches out their arm, takes you and grabs you and pulls you out. This is what Jesus has done. That when we cannot save ourselves, Jesus came in to rescue us. But not only is he our help and our salvation, but he is our help in the Christian life. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help, to aid, to come alongside those who are being tempted. He knows our struggles. He's with us in our struggles. He knows suffering and temptation. He is with us in our suffering and temptation. Jesus is our help, church family. So it is because that Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. He is the founder. He is the high priest. He can make atonement for you and for me. That we, by God's grace, who have run rebels away from God, rejected him, can be made right in God's sight. That when we were in that river, because of our own rejection of God, unable to save ourselves, unable to get out, that Jesus reached down and he pulled us out. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So how do we respond? How do we respond to Jesus. Let me give you three ways this morning. Going back to last week. First, Jesus deserves our greatest attention. Jesus deserves our greatest attention. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. There are all kinds of things in our lives screaming for our attention. All kinds of media screaming for our attention. Friends, and we talked about this last week, Jesus deserves our greatest attention. Because He is the faithful high priest, because He has gone before, because He became one of us, because He died in our place, because He rose again, because we have new life in Him, and we have help in our time of need. Jesus deserves our full focus of our lives. The desire and compulsion of every true Jesus follower is to center their life on Jesus. It should be our desire that He would be the one who has our greatest attention, our greatest devotion. Friends, this morning, if you're here and you are a Jesus follower, what is competing for your attention? We said this last week, Jesus is superior. Is He superior in your life? 
And even this morning before we take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to examine ourselves and say before God, what is competing for devotion and attention? But not only do we respond by giving our greatest attention, second, we respond by making Jesus our only devotion. Again, chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We talked about this last week. If you reject the Son, there is no hope for you. God is giving us everything we need, even this morning, this message, friends. For some of you, you don't know Jesus, and in God's kindness and His mercy this morning, the gospel's been presented to you. We've sung it, you've heard it prayed, you've heard it declared from scriptures. Don't turn from Jesus. How shall we escape if we neglect the only one who can save us? We said this last week. We can't keep Jesus on the periphery of your life and be a Jesus follower. To be a believer means Jesus is the center. Not just on the edge, not just a part of it. He is the center of it. You are always coming back to that. God, help me to center on Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my King. Jesus either is your life or He isn't truly in your life. And that doesn't mean we don't struggle, that doesn't mean we don't stumble, but we are always coming back to Him as our hope and our Savior. So we respond by looking to Jesus as our greatest attention. We respond by Him being our only devotion. For some of you this morning, that might be responding by saving faith to the gospel. Lastly, we respond through worship and awe. Jesus is our faithful, merciful high priest. He's the one who is our help in time of trouble today and forever. And so as we come and we take at the Lord's table and we take the bread and we take the cup, we are reminded of our help this morning. And we worship Him together. So let me pray for us and then I'll lead us in this time of taking the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank You this morning that Jesus... It's the founder of our salvation. We thank you that he is the merciful and faithful high priest, that he is the righteous payment, the propitiation for our sin. I just pray for my friends this morning. I pray that some of these concepts are kind of big and sometimes hard to grasp. I pray that even this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would make things just really simple for us. You love us. We rebelled against you. And God in his kindness sent his son to save us. Our response is to give ourselves fully and completely to you. To remember your work. We do that now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.